0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Micah chapter 6. John this morning joked that he had a, a pastor one time That he always knew when he was angry at the church because he'd preach minor prophets. Um, I'm not angry this morning, but it's hard to preach the minor prophets and not um, sound a little bit angry um, because there often is a lot of anger and judgment being poured out through the minor prophets. And this passage we're going to read today definitely has some of that. Micah is towards the end of your Old Testament. Um, It's in the section we call minor prophets, not because what they have to say is anything less, um, just because they didn't write as much as the other guys. Um, And so. What we're going to see today, one of the verses that we're going to come across in Micah chapter 6 what I call a Hobby Lobby verse. Um, If you're not familiar with this term, the reason I call them Hobby Lobby verses is because you'll see them on signs at Hobby Lobby. And typically, these type of verses are are very um, heartwarming. They're very encouraging. Um, The type of verse you would not see... On a sign in Hobby Lobby um, is something like Second Kings two, where it says, "Go up, you baldhead! Go up, you baldhead!" And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears came out of the woods and tore forty two of the boys. All right? That's not necessarily a Hobby Lobby verse. It's not very encouraging of a verse. Some of you are like, "I didn't know that was in the Bible." Yes, that that is a prophet of God that calls bears to maul boys. That's the that's the moral of that story, I think. Um, but the reality is is that there are verses that are encouraging to us, right? There are certain verses that we find encouraging. But what's often the case is those verses that we find encouraging are typically taken out of context. We're really good um, at taking verses in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and and losing the context of of where they are in Scripture. And the problem with doing this is we often cheapen what the Scripture is talking about. And we cheapen and we lose the richness and the depth of all that God is doing. Um, One of the the reasons I appreciate Amy and all she does at at Journey House is because it's, it's really easy when we talk about the value of life or valuing life to have a very cheap understanding of that. But what I've seen with Journey House and with Amy, both just how all she's done in her personal life but also with her ministry, is that they understand that valuing life is not easy that's not clean. That doesn't fit in some box. It doesn't fit in in our preconceived notions of what it means to help people. And then often it means helping people that are hurting, helping people that are broken, helping people people that don't fit into a mold of what we think people should look like. And one of the things that I think we're going to realize, and and you'll know, I'm I'm pretty sure you're confident that when I read from chapter six here, Micah, you'll understand what the Hobby Lobby verse is here. But what I want to show us from this passage and get us to understand is that when we take this verse out of context, we actually miss the richness of what God is telling us here. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read all of chapter 6. You can follow along with me. Starting in verse 1, through the prophet, here's what's written. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of your, of your Lord." and 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 you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gileam that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales, and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, and your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You shall tread all of us, but not anoint yourself with oil. You will, you will tread grapes, but not drink wine. You have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And, and you have walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolate and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people." very uh, heartwarming verses we've read this morning. And now I can guarantee that there's probably one verse that stuck out to you, because most likely there's one verse that you may know or have memorized from this passage. Um, and I guarantee it's probably not, I will make you a desolation and your habitants a hissing, so you will bear the scorn of my people. I guarantee that's probably not the verse in chapter 6 that you have memorized. Probably what you have memorized or you're familiar with is, He has told you, O man, and what does the Lord he's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's probably the verse that's most familiar to you, right? And and to be fair, when I was looking yesterday, you will not find that verse on a sign at Hobby Lobby. They do not have that verse, Um, but you can. If you just search that verse and search signs on Etsy and, and online, you can find thousands of signs with this verse. And what's interesting um, is most of them don't even have the full verse. I don't know how many of them had the idea of do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. That was was the word, six words on, on on the sign. What's interesting about that is if we actually stop and think what's happening in this verse, it's really odd that that would be what we take. Because the verse starts, the chapter starts with God pronouncing an indictment. This is actually a criminal case, basically, that God is is offering, and this is the charge of the prosecution. To put it in different terms, it would be like hanging on your wall the charges against O.J. Simpson, right? It'd be saying, here's the murder charges. Here's the charges that we have, right? One count of murder, third degree, right? One count of of fleeing the police, right? That'd be a really weird thing to have hanging on your wall, right? If you walked into somebody's house and that's what they had on the wall, you would give them odd looks, And maybe very quickly leave the premises, right? That'd be an odd thing to have. But that's what God is doing here. He's giving the charges against the Israelites. And he's using his prophet to do it. So what are the charges that God brings forth against the Israelites? On some level, the first charge that God is is bringing is they've forgotten who he is. This is really what he lays out in verses 3 through 5. Is that the Israelites have forgotten who God is and specifically what he's done for them. You know, we read a lot of the Psalms this past week with Bobby Kelly on Wednesday night, on Tuesday night, Monday, and Sunday with with January Bible study. And what he showed us is how the Psalms detail the richness of God's character and our responses to them. And one of the things the nation of Israel shows us time and time again is no matter how good God is, we are very quick to forget his character. And what God is saying to the nation of Israel is, do you not remember what I've done for you? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. While you were slaves, I came and rescued you. You remember the whole 10 plagues and parting the sea and and all of that? Do you not remember that? Or then, do you not remember, while you were unfaithful and I made you wander in the desert, Right, you were going to be destroyed by this king and and this wizard, basically, and I saved you again right? Do you not remember even your disobedience? When you are facing the punishment for your disobedience, do you not remember my goodness? Do you not remember how faithful I was to you, to borrow from our Psalms this morning? Do you not remember who I am? That's how he ends verse 5, right? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The Lord has done good to you. Israel, why have you not done good to your Lord? That's the first charge that he brings, But the second charge is found in verse 6 through 8. And it kind of flows out of the first, but if the first charge is that you do not know the Lord your God, that you've forgotten who he is, the second charge is that you have not obeyed the Lord your God. Verses 6 through 8 is making the point that what Israel was supposed to do, Israel knew. right? Israel knew what God had commanded them to do, and they did not do it. Right? That's why he's, the, the, the prophet speaking here is making the, the idea, right? He's saying, even if I offered all these sacrifices, I would still be guilty because everything else the Lord has commanded me to do, I have not done. Really, what you have in verse 8 is a summarization of the entirety of the law. If you were to ask, how is the law summarized? Right? Jesus himself s- summarizes it, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Right? This is basically the same idea encapsulated in verse 8, right? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your Lord, right? You cannot do that unless you love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so really what you have in verse 8 is a summarization of the law. And through the prophet, God telling the people that not only did they forget who God was, they didn't even do what they knew God had commanded them to do. Um, When we were walking through this verse in staff meeting this week, Sue had a really great explanation for the tone of what God's saying here. Those of you that have kids can probably connect with this. Didn't I tell you that would happen, right? Didn't I tell you if you do this, you're going to get punished, right? Those of you that have kids have probably never said that to your kid before, right? I have a two-year-old and I've said that to her, <laughs> right? That idea, that's the tone of God here. Don't you know? Didn't I tell you that if you do these things, if you forget who I am, there will be consequences. And if we had the time, we'd go back to Exodus and and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and we would see that God told the people very clearly what the punishment was for breaking his law. You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see a section of blessings and curses. And what God says is, if the people do what he has commanded them to do, there will be a blessing to them and to the land. But if the people disobey God, there will be a curse upon them, and upon the land. And really, what you have from verse 9 all the way through the rest of the chapter through verse 16 is God showing how the charges that he's brought are true and telling them the punishment for that, right? If you look what happens in verse 6, and really in verse 7 and 8, and then into verse 9, is the idea that the, that the people who had money, right, misused their money. Instead of honoring the law, which is to take care of the poor, they did not do that, right? The people who were in positions of power misused their power, right? The kings misused their power, right? The people themselves, right, instead of honoring their neighbors, speaking truth, right, one of the big Ten Commandments, right, they bared false witness against each other, right? And what you have is God basically saying, all the ways that I've commanded you, all the things I've commanded you to do, you have broken them, And so ultimately, in verse 11 through 13, here's the punishment, right? He announces what he's charging them with, he proves that the charges are true, and then he announces the destruction that's coming for them. He basically says that everything they thought they wanted to be, everything that he had called them to be, he is now going to destroy. And we know, if we know any Old Testament history, that what God pronounces in judgment here comes to pass. The people are driven from the land. Jerusalem is destroyed. They will spend basically the next 3,000 years, 2,000 plus years in exile, right? Kicked out of the land without a nation to call their own, right? Everything that God pronounces against them comes to pass. Why? Because they've committed sins, and their sins demand punishment. And so bring it back to verse 8. Bring it back to verse 8, and this idea, right, of do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is not a verse that should be an encouragement to us. I remember one time I was preaching a funeral of a man that I did not know, um, and his family came to me, and they wanted this verse read at his funeral. And so I did, but I, I kept thinking in back in my mind that I think the idea of the family is actually contrary to the idea of this verse. You see, the family wanted it read as, oh, look at what a great man he was. But in reality, what this verse is doing is the complete opposite. And it's not pointing out, not just to the Israelites, but to every single one of us, how horrible of men we are. Because the reality is, if we all stopped and, and, and thought for a second, we probably wouldn't have to think that hard of times that we did not do justice right? which we are agents of injustice, we can think of times when we did not love mercy, right? And we wanted vengeance against people. And we can think of times in which we did not walk humbly with our God, right? The reality is every single one of us is not God in this story. We are the Israelites suffering under the condemnation of God. But that's not how we think of this verse, is it? That's not what makes this a Hobby Lobby verse, People don't have this on their wall, so every morning when they see it, they're reminded of the judgment of God poured out on the nation of Israel. I don't know, maybe somebody does, but I don't think that's how most of us think of it, right? We read this verse and think, oh man, I'm such a great person. Look at me loving justice, right? Doing what God has called me to do. Look at me loving, look how merciful I am, right? Not even thinking that the next verse is to walk humbly with your God, right? We kind of forget that one at the end. Right? We 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 read this verse and we want to make it about self-righteousness. But the testament of this verse is that righteousness only is found in God. And there's this beautiful theme throughout Micah. And we don't have time to read, to read the entirety of the book, but if we read the entirety of the book, what we would see is that after judgment is pronounced on the people, there's always a hope of salvation. In fact, verse 5 is all about the Savior born in Bethlehem and a remnant of the people that is saved from destruction. And chapter 7 is about waiting for God's salvation. You might have that as a title for that chapter if you have it titles in your book, right? And this idea of God's steadfast love and his compassion upon the people and how he will save even as he pours out his destruction. And so the reality is when we read verse 8, we should read it as the Israelites read it, as realizing there's a judgment coming for us, Right? The Israelites weren't posting this around their home. They wanted to run as far away from this verse as possible. But the good news is, for us that are in Christ, this has a new meaning. Here's why. Because there was one that did justice. There was one that loved mercy. And there was one that walked humbly with his God, and his name was Jesus. Right? Who loved justice more than the man who helped the oppressed? Who loved justice more than the man that healed the blind, the cast out demons? Who loved justice more than the man who died so God could be both the just and the justifier? Nobody loves justice more and did justice more than Jesus Christ. And who loved mercy more than the one who left his throne on high to die on our behalf, even as we were in sin and rebellion against him? Nobody loved mercy more, and nobody loved kindness more than Jesus Christ. And who walked humbly with his God more than Christ, who being in the very image of God, did not count equality as God with something to be grasped, but lowered himself to the point of a servant, taking on human flesh for our behalf, walking among us, living among us, dying for us, so that we could be made right with God who depended on the power of the Father and of the Spirit to accomplish all that he accomplished. If anybody had a right to brag, it was him. And instead, he came walking humbly with his God. And so the reality is, we understand that even as this verse condemns us, it points us to the one who can save us. Because it points us to the one who actually embodies all that God requires. And so as we look at this, we understand that what verse 8 is telling us is not that we can be made righteous, but that he can make us righteous. And that the judgment we deserve has been paid by Christ. That Christ paid our punishment for us. And so what we see, what's amazing about this, what the New Testament will unpack for us, is that because Christ has done what the law requires, it's not just that we are made to not face punishment, is that we are given the righteousness of Christ. The fancy theological term is called imputed righteousness, meaning that his righteousness is inside of us. We are given his righteousness. It's not just that we no longer, that we have an empty account. It's that when God looks at us, he sees people that do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. Our status before God is completely changed by what Christ has done. And so instead of facing the judgment and the condemnation of verse 9 onwards, we are able to rejoice and have peace and confidence and relationship with God because of what Christ has done. And now here is the beauty of this. is that then, once that happens, once we're a believer in God, once Christ saves us, right, and our identity is changed, and we are now defined, not as people who do injustice, but people who do justice— right? And once we are defined not as people who are unrighteous, but people who are righteous, then our ability to accomplish, verse 8, to accomplish all that God says, to remember what he's done for us, is actually available to us. Because here's the thing. Here's what's so ironic about putting verse 8 up on your wall. Is because the harder you try to do justice— and the harder you try to love mercy, and the harder you try to walk humbly with your Lord apart from Jesus Christ, the more you will fail in doing those three things. It is impossible to please God without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel took a long time to learn that. And the nation of Israel suffered because they failed to learn that. You see, they thought the law was about making them righteous in their own power and their own effort. When in reality, the law was there to point them to the only one who could make them righteous in his name was Jesus Christ. And so for those of us who are in Christ, we actually now are able to live out this passage. Because you see, our identity has changed to where we're able to do this. Right? Our hearts have changed, right? our desires have changed, and are continually changing by the word of God. And we are actually able and we seek to live out this passage not as a means of earning favor with God, which is what the Israelites try to do, right? Not as a favor, not as an idea of trying to be self-righteous, which is what the Pharisees tried to do, but instead as a response to a Savior who has done all that God has commanded to be done. And so we live and we seek to do these things as a response then to all that God has accomplished in us. And it's only because we see who Christ is that we're able to even do any of these things, You see, the reason that God cared so much about the Israelites forgetting who he is and what he had commanded them is because the Israelites' mission was to display God's character to the nations. And so when the Israelites forgot God and they worshiped other gods, they were actually displaying the character not of God, but the character of other gods. If you look at verse 16, that's what he's saying. In verse 16, he says, right, you have followed false gods. You are led to the statutes and works of other people, other gods. And you're displaying the character not of me, not of who I am, not of what I've commanded you, but the character and the deeds of a false god. And so as Christians, right, we understand now that our God is God, our God is Christ, and we seek to display his character to the world around us. And we can do that, unlike the Israelites, because our hearts have been changed by him. And so here's the reality. You may be saying, okay, how does this passage connect to the sanctity of life? The reality is, the first step to actually valuing the sanctity of life is to believe in Christ as Savior. The one who saves us from death the one who valued life above all, giving up his own life. And then from there, we're actually able to do what verse 8 commands us to do. And in doing verse 8, that's how we value life, right? We do justice. We fight for laws that protect the unborn. We fight for statutes and rules that make it so that life is protected, right? We do justice, right? We love mercy. We show compassion and kindness towards, towards the mothers who've been victims of abortion. We show mercy and kindness to those who are suffering from depression and the weight of decisions they made in the past. We show mercy upon them. Right? And we walk humbly with our God. Here's why. Why do we do justice? Because we understand that we serve a God who is just, who punishes evil, and we understand what evil is in light of the cross and what Christ has done. And so we do justice because we understand that God did justice by punishing our sins on Christ. And so we do justice. We love mercy because we understand that it's not our goodness that saved us. It is his. And the only thing that makes us different than the person destined for hell is not how good or great or righteous we are is because God in his infinite mercy chose to save us. And so we show mercy because we are shown mercy. Mercy. And we walk humbly with our God because we understand that the reason we're able to to offer a helping hand is because God loved us. And so we walk humbly with the people around us. We walk humbly with our God, knowing that we are not God. We are not creator. We are not the sovereign who's going to ultimately punish evil. He is. And so when it comes to whatever topic we're talking about, be it sanctity of life, life of the unborn, Right, be it Whatever injustice is the flavor of the day, we know, and we walk humbly, because we know the one who cares about justice more than us, the one who shows mercy more than us, we know the one who is coming back is not us, it is him. As Revelation tells us, when he comes back, he will judge with a sword. And so we do not have to be the avenging angel. We do not have to be the all-conquering king. We do not have to be the ones that make everything in this earth right because we serve the one who is. And so I want you to see, I want you to understand that, that to truly value life, to truly live out what it means to, to, to promote the sanctity of life, you have to do what's commanded in verse eight. But the only way you can do that is if you put your hope and trust and faith in Christ. Because if you not, then ultimately in some level, you will make it about yourself, You'll make it about your cause. You'll make about everything else but God. And ultimately, a Scripture attests, that leads to end, we apply verse 8. But whether it be valuing the life of an unborn baby, whether it be loving on a mother who's contemplating a, an abortion, whether it be comforting a child who's being adopted, whether it be walking alongside an elderly parent who's suffering from dementia, Whatever the case may be, whatever the injustice is, wherever mercy needs to be found, Christians should be there. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we are more righteous, but because we know the one who is. And in standing there and loving and showing justice and walking humbly with the word, we display that we serve a God who saves And so as the worship team comes to lead us in a hymn invitation, I have a question for you. And the question is, is on one level, very simple. Do you do justice? Do you love kindness? And do you walk humbly with your God? And the reality is, the answer will either be yes or no. And if the answer is no, the question does not beg the solution of trying harder. If you look at your life and say, I cannot be categorized as somebody that loves justice, that does justice, that loves kindness, and that walks humbly with the Lord, I do not encourage you this morning to try harder to do those things. I instead encourage you this morning to look to cross of Christ and to find your hope and salvation not in doing these things, but instead find your hope and salvation in what Jesus has accomplished for you. And the amazing irony of it all is you will look at your life and suddenly find that you're doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your Lord because you will realize all that God has done for you through Christ. If you are there this morning and you're a Christian who says, yes, I know Christ, right? I seek to do justice. I seek to love kindness, to walk humbly with my God. That is, a, that is my character. That is who I am. Then I encourage you this morning to continue on, to persevere, to not grow tired of doing good as the New Testament puts it. Because the reality is, as long as we live on this earth, there will be injustice. There will be people crying out for vengeance. And there will be people full of pride. But until Christ returns and judges the living and the dead, our charge never changes. Look first and foremost to Christ and to live out of that. Will you pray with me? Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. On our own, we would be like the Israelites, condemned for our sins. But by the blood of Christ, we can be saved. Lord, we had asked this morning that you would help us to live in response to our salvation as the ways you've called us to. That we would live out all that you've commanded us in humble obedience to the God who saves us pray that you'd work in our hearts and minds this morning for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.